30 for 30 podcast is brought to you by Delta Airlines. Delta flies to 300 cities around the world. That's 300 cities where everyone does the same things you do. That's 300 cities where the people in those 300 cities think they're the only ones who know about that one place. 300 cities where people miss someone in one of the other 299 cities. 300 cities where people sing in the car or in the shower or both poorly. Delta isn't flying to 300 cities merely to bring us together, but to show us we're not that far apart in the first place. Delta, keep climbing. Welcome to 30 for 30 Plus. My name is Jody Abergay. This is our series of bonus conversations that we present in between seasons of our original audio documentaries. We are currently working very hard on a new batch of those stories that we will be announcing in the coming weeks. But today, for this bonus episode, we turn our attention to the world of motorsports, which has the rare distinction as being one of the sports where men and women are essentially on a level playing field in that body strength and physical speed take a backseat to focus, precision, and skill. And yet, women have struggled to break through at the highest levels of motorsports. That is the topic of the latest 30 for 30 film. It's called Qualified. It used to be that women can't do it. They don't have the strength. They don't have the endurance. They're going to endanger our lives. You don't hear that anymore. What you do hear is they're never going to win. And believe me, if I didn't think I could win, I would quit. But I do think I can win. For a four-year stretch starting in 1977, Janet Guthrie attempted to accomplish what a woman had never done, qualify for and win the world's most famous race, the Indianapolis 500. Unsurprisingly, she faced a ton of resistance. We've got five or six other rookies here, and uh, she gets all the attention, and they don't get nothing, and that's not right. Do you think she'll be able to last 600 miles? No. (laughs) What was surprising to the establishment was how good of a racer Janet Guthrie actually was. Despite inferior equipment, funding that paled in comparison to some of the other teams, and open hostility from her male competitors, Guthrie not only qualified, but earned a top 10 finish in 1978. Within two years, she finished ahead of Mario Andretti. The lady can literally drive with one hand tied behind her back and compete with the men. On today's episode, a look at Janet Guthrie's struggles, her achievements, her determination, and how her career suddenly stalled out. The director of Qualified, Jenna Ricker, and her producer, Caroline Waterlow, will join me in a moment. But first, it is my pleasure to say hello to the legend herself. Janet Guthrie, welcome to the 30 for 30 podcast, and congratulations on this film. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to get into the film and your career, but I was wondering if you could just describe what it's like to drive an indie car. Well, there's nothing that I know of that requires such focus without a lapse for such a long time because you can't afford to make small mistakes because small mistakes have a shot at turning into unseemly mishaps. You're trying to beat the next guy into the corner, but you're not going to put him in the wall in order to do it. Janet Guthrie is hanging on. Janet is still doing quite well in her second Indianapolis 500. A.J. Ford just one place in front of Janet Guthrie. So it's a very interesting combination of competition, and yet you're responsible for the well-being of the person you're competing against. I don't know anything like it, really. This close to the end of a race, anything can happen. 
one of the things I learned from the film is that you grew up, you learned how to fly, you parachuted, but in your answer just then, you didn't say anything along the lines of, well, I, I'm a thrill seeker and I really like going fast or something like that. I mean, so where does that fit into to the appeal? Well, I guess I was born adventurous and grew up insufficiently socialized. <laughs> uh, flying was great fun. Uh, one of the elements is that this wonderful machinery, the airplanes, the race cars, enable women to compete right out there at the level of human ability because the broad shoulders and big muscles don't count. That's part of the appeal, finding out what it's like out there at the limits of human capability. So this may be a naive question, but why was it so hard to make that case throughout the 70s that this isn't about physical broad shoulders in the way that you just described? This is about focus and all the things that aren't sort of inherently different between men and women? Oh, mythology, I'm afraid. Actually, I had been racing uh, sports cars where women had always participated. I'd been doing that kind of thing for 13 years, and I, I could count the problems on the fingers of one hand that had anything to do with my being a woman. It just really wasn't an issue. So uh, to come into the top levels of racing in this country, IndyCar racing and NASCAR cup racing, and discover that uh, not everybody thought that way was uh, quite a surprise, actually. When you were trying to break in, did you get a sense that there was sort of actual misogyny at place? Or was it more just like, we have an old boys club here, we like our little network, and now someone's trying to crash the party? Well, unfortunately, uh, what was being said was along the lines of women don't have the strength, women don't have the endurance, women don't have the emotional stability, <laughs> women are going to endanger our lives. Sometimes it made me mad, uh, mostly I could laugh at it, because I figured they would learn better, and indeed, for the most part, that did happen. When you first started breaking in, and particularly when you got to Indy cars, your first few races, it felt like not just all eyes on you, but also testing you. You know, I mean, people were pretty explicit about this is your one chance. And if you screw it up, then you're not going to get a second chance. Well, I knew if I screwed up that it would be a long time before a woman got another chance. Yes, I did have to be a little extra cautious those first few races so that not only did I give the faster cars enough room, I gave them so much room that there wasn't going to be any doubt in their mind. And then as time went on, of course, I could uh, home in on that a little more. I watched you, Jen. I thought you did very well, but you looked a bit apprehensive coming up on the slower cars. Well, you got to bear in mind, Chris, I wasn't allowed to make any mistakes today with slower cars or faster cars. Yeah, I was giving them all the room in the world, you bet. We'll hear lots more from Janet Guthrie in a bit, but now let's talk to two of the people who had to craft her story, qualified director Jenna Ricker and producer Caroline Waterlow. Jenna started our conversation by talking about whether Janet Guthrie was a story that she knew about or whether she felt like she was really rescuing a story that had been lost to history. I didn't know who Janet Guthrie was myself, and I think what happened for me is in being introduced to her story, I was a little ticked I didn't know who she was. I was like, the first woman? I don't know 
the first woman who qualified for the Indianapolis 500. This is insane. And I think it started to like throw me down a rabbit hole of like, how many more women don't I know about? And, um, and I think that became something very clear to us as we were learning more about her and, and culling research is that mo- most people didn't know about her. And this is an overarching problem beyond the sport, beyond her story, is that every time we find out about a woman, it's still a novelty. And the more novelties, the less progress you can make. And um, if people can identify with somebody who's come before, it looks like a pretty big mountain to scale to go after something. So it, it did end up having a big impact on us. Did you know about this story, Carol? I did not. Jenna read the book and was very excited about it. And she and I uh, became friends through another mutual friend who was also a producer on the film, Nina Christic. And Nina and I had worked on the OJ mm-hmm. Made in America doc together. She's an archival genius. Um, and our other producer, Greg. Uh, so the four of us all kind of came together. And Jenna had this incredible enthusiasm and excitement for the story. And we all immediately agreed and sort of got on board. To me, it was like 70s women race cars awesome <laughs> there's no you look at a picture of her in her suit with her car and you just think I need to know everything about this and so it was kind of a no-brainer for me to want to produce it and try to talk ESPN into making it people who are listening to this podcast will have heard her and gotten a sense of her personality but I'm wondering if you can take a crack at describing Janet's personality tenacious single-minded in pursuit of yeah. things she's very inflappable <laughs> And so it's probably what made her such a great race car driver. Like as we did this, discovering like never seen an Indy car race, never seen an NASCAR race, and then gets in these cars and excels. Mm-hmm. And I think that's to her credit. You know, she did jump from kind of crappy sports cars to the top level of the sport. And it's to her credit that it was like, give me the machine and I will make it excel. Yeah. And then the great joy of of Janet as a character too is you go the next layer to her and it's like oh she jumped out of a plane when she was 16 right. oh she's an aeronautics engineer oh she built her own engine you know we talk about you know stem in education now right science technology ed- engineering math you know she is like the stem mm. spokesperson of all totally. time totally <laughs> um, yeah. and that's another all the areas that she excelled in are just these kind of have traditionally not been Areas that we hear about women. Do you think she was motivated by just, I'm really good at this and I want to do this? Or how much did she recognize the sort of trailblazing nature of what she was doing? She was not trying to be the first. She was not trying to make a huge feminist statement. She's like, I'm just trying to drive my car and I'm good at it and I and I love it and I want to do it. So please let me do it. <laughs> but then she talks about in the film how over time, as people point out to her that she is this trailblazer and she sort of realizes that it has become a role that she does yeah. feel some responsibility towards in terms of being this woman to blaze a trail. And so she, yeah. she re- she's a reluctant hero in that yeah. sense. I think that was one of the things certainly that drew me to her. I think that most trailblazers or most people who do these things aren't consciously thinking, I'm going to carry this banner. It is because they're so focused on the thing they believe they're meant to do that eventually there's a wake behind them. I think for all women, it's always like you're you're carrying all of womanhood on your back. You're like, what are you talking? I'm just trying to go shopping. You know, <laughs> like it's always so weighted down. And it's a big burden to carry that doesn't happen to men excelling at something or stepping out of the norm. 
they're not all of a sudden given this albatross. Right. The failure stakes are so high. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I thought that came through really strongly in the film and it continues to this day. But just this notion that certain people have much shorter leashes than others. Um, Certain people, I shouldn't mince words, like white men get much longer (laughs) leashes than others. And and you see it like you have to be perfect if you're you're going to try and be first. Yeah. Um, Or even compete. Yeah. You know, even get the shot. It's it's. But there were there were explicit. I mean, it was explicit in that moment. I mean, there's you know, I'm trying to remember the, the particular quote, but there were there were race officials basically saying, "This is your chance to prove it, and you only get one." Yeah, right. You have to race Trenton before right. we'll let you even set you know step on the track at Indy. That was very much like you know someone's going to get killed with this woman on the track. I mean that. I mean it's about as high stakes as you could possibly yeah, imagine for her absolutely. having to go out and prove herself. Yeah. I mean, people were very concerned about it. There's times when it's like. Oh, this is an old boys club and people are being just sort of like jokey and fraternal about it. But then there's times when like some of the signs that were out there and some of the language that was used was like oh, it's bad. mean and no. bad. Like really no, scary. The grandstands behind the pits, it was always a scene. You know, people agitating her, saying rude things. The favorite, I suppose, was get the tits out of the pits. Here come two young guys, you may say. Hi, Janet. You gonna qualify? I said, I hope so. And they said, well, we don't. We hope you crash on our corner. I didn't really have a thick skin, but if that's what it took to get a shot at the Indianapolis 500, I would deal with it. That's all. A couple years before Janet arrives on the scene, women aren't even allowed in the pit area. And so these female sports writers sued the track to get access. And I was reading one of the articles about it, and there's drivers saying, if I see one woman on the track, I'm going to run the bitch over. I mean, this is what they're saying. And this is just somebody asking to do their job and be a reporter. It was sort of shocking and then not shocking. In 1978, Gordon Johncock, uh, an Indy champion, he shook the car down. And when he came back, he got out of the car and he threw his helmet. He was just furious. And he realized that what was happening on the track, I mean, guys were trying to, like, literally cause him to to crash. And he realized it was because they thought it was Janet in the car. Oh, and he was driving her car. Yeah. Yeah. So he experienced what she. (laughs) And it was, yeah. And it was just that moment of, like, oh, my God, that's what you're up against. And that's what you're up against in practice. And that's what you're up against a year into, two years into doing this? And, of course, there's the question of whether her car was actually sabotaged at one point. Conditions are perfect. Green flag is still out. Janet Guthrie into the pit. At the end of two laps, I had four burned pistons. The Texaco Star will be recorded as the first car out of this 500-mile race. She's not even getting out of the race car. What a disappointed lady that must be. Did you as filmmakers feel like, oh, we got to track down a definitive answer on whether she was sabotaged or not? Or how did you play that moment? I mean, just from from speaking with her, it was like a futile exercise. She said if she had had a way to prove it, she would have done it. But there was, when she discovered some of the elements that might, in fact, have supported that, it was too late in the game. She wasn't in the race. And how could you prove it? So at some point, it just becomes... Sound maybe a little sour grapey, mm-hmm. although it is quite possible. Some of the stories we got from some of her crew made you think that 
you know, something wasn't. There's some questionable. There's some big questionable things. things. Yeah. Everything went extremely well at the start of the race, but the motor went away. I was devastated. It was, it was really bad. Janet, knowing you, I know you'll be back here next year. Coming up, more with Jenna Ricker and Caroline Waterlow, and then we get back to our conversation with Janet Guthrie on the secret that almost derailed her best chance at Indy and how one one-hundredth of an inch can make or break a race. Thirty for Thirty podcasts are brought to you by OnStar. If you're ever faced with something as terrible as vehicle theft, OnStar can help. OnStar has the power of stolen vehicle slowdown. It's a feature that enables an advisor to work with law enforcement to get your stolen ride back, slowing down your vehicle enough so that authorities have a chance to apprehend the crook who took it. Get OnStar on your team today. OnStar is available on Chevrolet, Buick, GMC, and Cadillac. OnStar, be safe out there. Require select paid plan, cell reception, GPS signal, and working electrical system. Doesn't prevent theft, damage, or loss. Details at OnStar.com. 30 for 30 podcast is brought to you by our friends at State Farm. Whatever life brings your way, State Farm is here to help life go right. State Farm has over 19,000 agents across the country. 19,000 is a huge number, but it's not the number that's impressive. It's the personal service and attention to detail you can only get from your local State Farm agent. Talk to a State Farm agent today about combining the purchase of your home and auto insurance. State Farm, here to help life go right. Janet Guthrie became the first woman to drive at the Indianapolis 500 five years ago. But despite her credentials, she won't be driving a next Sunday's classic. She is in our studio to explain why. Why don't you tell us, Janet, why you're not at Indy right now? Well, a matter of funding, uh, Howard, uh, funding has always been a problem for me and for other women. You know, a driver, no matter how good, can't make a car go faster than what it's capable of. And I feel like I've always gotten more out of my cars than any other driver. A.J. <laughs> Floyd has told me he wouldn't even have sat in some of the cars that I've driven. You're saying there's not equal opportunity for women in your sport. A full season of racing this year is 13 races, 13 to 18 races generally. I've had a chance to drive 11 races in my entire IndyCar career, mostly one race a year, with an equal opportunity. I can win races. I proved it at the lower level of the sport in cars I built and funded myself. I can also do it at the top if I get the chance. So people will hear it in the film and in the interview with her in this podcast, but she really knows her stuff when it comes to the mechanics She's of a gearhead. the car. She's a gearhead. Exactly. Thank you for using one word when I was trying to use 15. But um, I thought you did a really good job of letting us see that side of her in the film without going too far down the rabbit hole, but how did you balance that? Well, it's one of my favorite moments in the film when she talks about the Jaguar that she used to race and then when she first discovered racing and she loves the sound of the engine and the and the double overhead six cylinder. What you yeah. know, like, <laughs> yeah. I can't even say it She's all myself. Like, but. The XK120 is still considered one of the most beautiful cars ever designed. These long, swooping curves, the low height, the double overhead cam six-cylinder engine that made a, a sound like no other engine in the world. It's like she's talking about a 
like a love yeah. story, you know, that she falls in love with it. And initially it was kind of funny to see her talk like that. And you're like, why is this funny? It's because I am so not used to seeing a woman oh. talk like this. And I am not used to seeing an 80 year old woman talk like this. You know, if you're going to change the narratives about who are heroes and who are protagonists, it's great to be able to, to show that. I've always contended, and the more I kind of make this kind of stuff, I realize that the hallmark to me of 30 for 30s is great archival. We have an approach to stories, and we try and pick certain kinds of stories, but I really think the thing that makes a story good or bad is really just like, can you find surprising archival? And this film, there's a stat that's floating around. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but I can't, every time I talk to someone in the office about this film, they're like, it's... 78% archival. 78%. No. 78%. Like, yeah. I don't know how she, someone calculated that. Top 10 and 78. Yeah. Right. Is that right? We did calculate that. Good. Yes. That is yes. Int- that's intense. Yeah. I mean, a normal film, I feel like it's probably like 30 or 40%, maybe at most. I yeah. mean, when did you start to realize how much of this film would be told in archival footage? I think when we were first talking about uh, even bringing the project in to pitch, um, one of the things from a creative standpoint was if we're going to tell the audience, here's somebody you should know about, here's somebody that mattered, what better way to do it than to prove it by the fact that she was all over the news Mm -hmm. in 1976, 77, 78. You want to see her in her heyday, in the moment, and you want to see those guys who were her peers and fellow racers when AJ was winning it for the fourth time. I I, I must say that when I heard that Bobby Unser claimed he could uh, teach a hitchhiker to drive better than me, I absolutely rolled in the aisles. Love it. For indie, too, it's like the cars and the sound. It's just Americana ritual of the whole thing, you know? So it's like you needed to kind of be in all of that. Mm -hmm. There's like a visceral experience to the whole thing that you have to get. And the period nature of it was actually quite, was really important. When she breaks her wrist in this like crucial clincher moment in a really important race. Janet went to some kind of a charity event, tennis match. Reaching for an awkward shot, I tripped over my own feet and fell and hurt my wrist. And then we found in her family, her brother's Super 8s, whatever, there's footage of the broken wrist with the cast on it. I mean, you just, you know, these literal kinds of things that you often don't get when you're working on something exclusively archival. Yeah. And, and so that was, there were several moments like that. It was like, oh my God, there's an actual shot of <laughs> Turning the steering wheel, well, that didn't seem to be a problem. But the gear shift that's done with a flick of the wrist, and my wrist wouldn't flick. Here they come to the starting line, and the green flag is out the racing at Indianapolis. I went to shift with my right hand, and I missed the shift. I thought I was going to get hit from behind immediately. I held the wheel with my right hand, which was not a problem, and reached over and under pressure, the left hand learned where the gears were. So of all the moments in the film, the scene with Janet hiding her broken wrist really stands out in showing just how short the leash was on Janet Guthrie in those days. But as Caroline noted, one thing that did help Guthrie was that at her core, she was a gearhead. So now let's get back to my conversation with Janet herself, and we'll pick that up. I asked her about how very small tweaks on a car can have a really big impact on winning or losing. One of my favorite sections in the film is just describing all of the tinkering, if that's the right word, that goes into just trying to get your car to go like a few miles per hour faster. And at one point you refer to swapping out a washer that's like a hundredth of an inch slightly thicker and moving it from the front of the car to the back or something. 
those little changes really make that big of a difference? Oh, absolutely. What is the difference between 189 miles per hour and 192 miles per hour? <laughs> All the difference in the world. It can make the difference between making the field and not making the field. So you work really, really hard to get as much out of that car as that car is capable of giving. I never really did have my hands on a, a front-running car except one year, and unhappily for reasons that are still mysterious, uh, instead I had four burned pistons at the end of the first lap. But still, to put a car in the top 10 for the Indianapolis 500 in an era when 85 cars could be entered and only the fastest 33 in qualifying would make the field. That was a good one. There's a moment in the film where you say, I didn't really have thick skin. With all due respect, I think I disagree. I mean, just watching the film, I mean, it looks like you had really thick skin and you put up with, with a lot. I, there was uh, a fair amount to to put up with, but the only important thing to me was getting my hands on that car and making that car go as fast as it was capable of. And once I was out on the racetrack and had developed a focus that's essential, then all the rest of it just went away, mm -hmm. and that was the key. But were there moments when you weren't on the track where the the pressure or the skepticism or the awful things people were saying got to you? It, sometimes it annoyed me, but uh, mostly I could laugh at it uh, because I knew they would learn better. Yeah. Well, there's one moment in the film, and it's of you in, in archival, and it's right after a race where you're talking to a reporter. It's the one moment, tell me if I'm reading this right, where it looks to me like you're a little fed up. And he asks, you know, kind of how did it go out there? And you go, well, you know, I was driving with one hand. And there was just an element there, and I appreciated it, because you're so even-keeled. And there was a moment there where you were like, come on, buddy. We haven't heard from one member of our commentary team yet, Sam Posey. He's with Janet Guthrie. Janet, a lot of people said a woman could never drive 500 miles, and here you are. Did you have any problems at all? Sam, I was driving with one hand. <laughs> Is that true? Oh, I had a little problem a couple of days ago. I uh, actually have a broken I had kept it secret, of course, that I had fractured my wrist. It wasn't a bad break, but it was a break. Um, I guess he asked me a question in a way that implied how could a poor, weak woman do what you just did, and uh, finish in the top 10 at the Indianapolis 500. So that might be what you heard. I didn't realize that it was there, actually. Well, I appreciated it. I kind of gave a little cheer because I was like, <laughs> it's about time you sort of snap back after all this, all that you had to endure. Um, are you still following racing? I try to keep up with what the women are doing uh, and what's going on with Pippa Mann, for example, who will be in the field this year at Indianapolis. She's a really good driver, but she's trying to do it with a low-budget team and one race a year. You need to build a relationship with a team. You need to uh, get the kinks and bugs worked out of the car. One race a year, and that one, the most important race in the world, you're not going to be able to run up front just doing that one race. And is that a product of her 
being an up and coming racer, or do you think there's still a product there of she doesn't get the financial backing because she's a woman? Oh, it's uh, she doesn't get the financial backing uh, because she's a woman. That's not, not a doubt in my mind. There are others in that situation. Um, Catherine Legs, Simona de Silvestro, they're out there. It's just a, a question of who gets the chance. What will it take to see a woman win the Indy 500? Um, a woman with the talent and the desire and the funding to run at least one full season and preferably two or three. And when a woman finds herself in that situation, I think we will see a woman winning races, yes. So it's really just about getting the sponsorships and the sort of structural support. Someone throw a lot of money at a talented racer and see what happens. Something like that. I mean, the year I finished in the top 10, I did it on a budget that was about 5% of the budget of a top-running team for a whole year. When you get in a car, just a regular car like we all do, do you ever want to just go really fast? No, driving on the street is transportation and racing is a sport. Oh, that's and how you sort of separate the worlds. No one should mistake one for the other. That's good advice. Okay, Janet Guthrie, thank you so much. Thank you. Janet Guthrie is the subject of the new 30 for 30 film. It's called Qualified. You also heard from the film's director, Jenna Ricker, and producer, Caroline Waterlow. You can go back to antiquity to find women doing extraordinary things, but their history is forgotten or denied ever to have existed. So women keep reinventing the wheel. Women have always done these things, and they always will. A special shout-out to Nina Christick, who did incredible archival work on the film, and Greg Stewart, who was also a producer and helped discover the story in the first place. Now, if you want to watch Qualified, the film it airs at 8 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday, May 28th. So if you're listening to this before then, go ahead and check it out. It's a really wonderful film. If you're listening to this after that, it will re-air in the coming days and weeks. And then by mid-June, it will be available on our streaming service, ESPN+. You can go ahead and subscribe to ESPN+. Plus Right now, I will point out that you can watch the full archive of 30 for 30 films there. It is the only place to see every 30 for 30 film. This episode was produced by Ryan Mantel with help from Vin D'Anton, Brian D'Ostilio, Jennifer Thorpe, Aaron Leiden, and Deirdre Fenton. My name is Jody Avergan. We'll be back soon with more 30 for 30. 